Welcome, savvy investor, to Skyline Views. Hey, welcome to another episode of Skyline Views. I'm Chris Mills. My guest today is uh, an ex-civil engineer turned passive real estate in investor, Lane Kawaoka. Welcome, Lane. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Aloha, everybody. <laughs> yeah, Lane's from Hawaii. <laughs> Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in real estate? Yeah, so I uh, currently have 4,200 units today, uh, syndicate opportunities, but I started back in 2009 after I graduated college as an engineer, and I bought my first rental property in Seattle. Didn't know anything about rent-to-value ratios or you know, buying and not buying in primary markets. Um, and that was kind of where I got the taste of cash flow. And that was where I started on this long journey to uh, quit the day job and uh, go to full-time real estate investor. Very cool. So uh, let's talk about the primary and secondary markets that you talked, that you just mentioned. Can you uh, kind of explain what you mean about that and your philosophy on it? Yeah, I think it, you know, this, is kind of the first stumbling blocks for a lot of investors, right? They think that they need to invest in their backyard. I was living in Seattle at the time and prices just don't work out out there in terms of rent to value ratios. You need to be above 1% rent to value ratio to be able to be comfortably cash flowing positively. So, you know, a lot of places like California, Hawaii, Seattle, you're not going to find rent to value ratios like that. You might find you might be lucky to find a $400,000 house in the ghetto that rents for $2,000, but 2000 divided by 400 grand is half a percent. That isn't going to work. Um, so I start to go to more secondary and tertiary markets like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Kansas City, you know, the places like that to get the numbers that I need to cash flow. And that's, you know, the fundamental difference between an appreciation based investor betting on or gambling on appreciation and a more prudent cash flow investor. Gotcha. So you stick pretty strictly to the 1% rule? Yeah. I mean, that's like the first step, right? That's like, if you're playing on Tinder, that's the swipe and left and swipe and right, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know what it is left or right, but that's like getting it to the next level where, you know, you're kind of putting into the analyzer, you're being a detective and seeing if the taxes are, are such and high or, you know, what is the, the, the insurance costs or, you know, what repairs need to make. Um, the 1% rule is a good first first rung of due diligence for sure. Gotcha. So of the, the markets that you threw out just a second ago, all those secondary markets, what are the, uh, I guess, key performance indicators or some other criteria that you use uh, when evaluating markets to, to dive into? Yeah, I mean, the big one, when you're looking at a big MSA, right, which is, you know, probably a little bit too big, and we'll kind of get into that in a little bit, but you want to look at population growth, right? And you can simply just go to Google and say Cleveland population growth, and it'll give you the graph, right? You want to be in a positively increasing population. And, you know, an indicator of that, or maybe it's the trailing, you know, product of that is job growth, right? There needs to be some kind of job growth story there. Um, a lot of the places that are like this are in the South and Southeast, you know, Texas, for example. Um, you know, that's kind of like the first thing, but then you have to drill into the submarkets. So every every MSA has dozens of submarkets, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to drill in on the right side of the block. But you know, most people don't even get past the market. 
and they don't even understand some markets. So that's important after. Sure. So do you have any um, minimums, almost like the 1% rule, but for markets, right? Like a minimum job growth or income level, anything of, of that effect? Yeah, you know, I don't really go into like that, that type of stuff because it's hard to tell and it's very like slow moving data where the population growth is kind of like the moving ship. It's definitely heading in a certain direction. I think at that point, you're, you kind of got me, right? I'm kind of looking for news headlines on a new big employer moving in. Obviously, you don't want it to be dominated by one employer, but you want there needs to be some kind of story, right, that you can kind of get behind. Then it's like, well, all right, we're looking for the crime maps, right? We hmm. don't want an area where there's very violent homicide or things like that. There's going to be some, some issues with vandalism, petty theft, right? That's just like anywhere else, but none of the really bad stuff. And then school districts. I mean, a lot of the places where you're going to hit that 1% rent to value ratio aren't going to be in the best areas, right? I mean, we, we try to pick up properties in the B, B plus areas, but they're typically not in the best school districts. So you can't really go off of that. Um, you know, that's probably one of the new, the newer investor mistakes, right? They go after the new school districts, but they're not hitting the 1% rent to value ratio. Right, they kind of go after that that secondary uh, indicator first. Um, it's important, but I mean numbers drive the deals. Absolutely, that's uh, you, you have to have it make sense on the way in for sure. Um, stuff happens after the fact, but if you're kind of right at that line on the way in, then in my experience, you're probably asking for trouble. Um, yeah, yeah, things happen things happen. So the, mm -hmm. the best you can underwrite the deal safely and with a much buffer, the more things can go wrong and you can still be pretty good. Mm -hmm. So at, at the scale you are now, um, you said 4,200 units? That's correct. Yeah. So what are some of those uh, safety systems and buffers that you have in place? So once you've purchased internally, uh, what kind of systems do you use and what kind of team uh, do you have? Well, what a lot of the, the safety gaps are in the, in the buy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, you know, buy properties that don't pencil on a month to month basis. So you're not scrimping on your expenses. Um, I mean, like when you underwrite a deal, you shouldn't write underwrite anything less than $4,000 a union, right? That's like one of the biggest things people will look at a performa from the broker and the broker will doctor it up so that the expenses are super low. So the NOI is high. Mm -hmm. Well, that ain't going to happen. Whenever you take over a property, you can probably expect the expenses to go up. The only, the only like exception I would say is if the expenses are somehow very high for some strange reason, and you can pinpoint what those strange reasons are. Maybe they're paying like too much insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mismanagement, you know, needs to be buried into the certain line items. How is mismanagement? Maybe it's just gross mismanagement. So, but what is it? Is it the insurance that they're paying too high? Is it the repairs that are listing too high? Is the CapEx being mismanaged on as a repair, as operational, which it shouldn't? Um, that needs to be backed out. So is this property truly ran at like $6,000 per unit per year? And can it really be ran at 5,000? But most times you're going into a project, you're trying to improve the community, make it a better product for tenants. Therefore, the expenses got to go up, right? You're, you got to add more services for the tenants. 
So, I mean, that's, that's one big one. And then just, you know, some underwriting things, like not assuming that the rent increases are going to be going up that much, you know, two and a half percent or higher, I think is a little bit too high. Uh, unless in your, you're in like a high, you know, cyclical era, like Phoenix, then I think it might be possible, but, and then, you know, your ver reversion cap rates, right? Your reversion cap rate is what you sell at the end of the deal. Um, it's a wild ass guess what that's going to be. So you try and be conservative. So you're trying to inflate the reversion cap rate at least half a point, a full point higher than your entrance. And a lot of people don't understand this, but this can change your performa plus or minus 30%. So you want to go in having this performa bulletproof so that when things do mess up, you hit a nice number. How involved are you in the property management? Do you, um, kind of turn everything over to your local property managers or are you, you know, pretty involved day to day? I'm pretty hands off. I mean, that's what, how I was when I was a construction supervisor. I let my foreman manage the crew, but I also empowered like the, the guys under him, the assistant foreman to kind of do their job. That's, so that's the way I see it, the property managers. Like I sh technically should not be interacting with the 30 to $50,000 employee. That is the role of some kind of regional manager or the person that I'm interfacing on the property management side. Now it takes it takes a while to get up to that scale to get like a regional manager on board, but that's the way I see the org chart, and I I try to respect the org chart as much as possible. Um, a lot of the employees of the property management staff are their employees; they do their HR, and I think that they should be taking order orders from them instead of me barking orders at them. Um, but if things aren't getting done, right. I mean, that, I think that's, that's the other side of this, right. And it's no different when you're a rental property owner, you, you kind of empower your property manager to make the right decisions, but they may come to you for certain decisions, which you need to get a timely response to, but then you need to keep them accountable, especially in the residential world, right. Where property managers are a lot lower quality than commercial property managers. You got to keep those guys accountable and you're always going to be getting a plan. Like, what do you what are you doing, right? It's like when I was a new engineer, I, my boss was, was being annoying because to me, because he always wanted a plan. What's your plan? What's your plan B? How long is it going to take you to do that? When you don't hit certain milestones, I need, I need to kind of know and step in because I know you're messing up. Same thing here. Yeah, that's really good advice. Let's talk, uh, let's pivot a little bit to what you call emergency fund 2.0. Can you introduce that for folks? Yeah, so I play um, family office advisor for a lot of my clients. And, you know, when you're a syndication investor going into dozens of deals and building your portfolio with these alternative assets, you start to realize that these syndicated deals, they're not frequent, right? It's not like it's always there for you to load money into. And sometimes they come in at clusters. Sometimes there's a little bit of dry spell. So it's very infrequent. Ideally, we all like to just load money as we get it right into a deal the next day, right? But that ain't gonna happen. Um, I don't know. I'm a, I should I shouldn't know this, but I don't know if it's like Poisson distribution or whatnot, and on the frequency of how deals come out. But they are definitely clustered more around. I mean, right now it's like November, December. It's a little bit quieter at this time of year. But you know, you get into May time, June time, deals are kind of hot and heavy. There, there's there's all over. I mean, I get my inbox flooded with passive deals. Um, so you as an investor kind of need to 
create what I call a, a emergency fund 2.0, which I call the opportunity fund, right? If most of these deals are, let's just go with half uh, $50,000 minimums, I call that like a bullet, right? Bullet in your gun. You need to have a certain amount of bullets ready to go. And you may not make that much money or be able to save that much money where you may only be able to fire off one deal a year or maybe two or three. But sometimes there may be three deals that you really want to get into and you have to rob from somewhere else. Well, where do you rob from in your personal budget? But a great place that I personally do things is in my infinite banking. So I overfund the infinite banking has many benefits, tax benefits, legal benefits, um, where it's off the table of litigators. It grows tax-free four to 5% and I can take a loan out of it whenever I get low with funds, such as in the case when I have gone into a few deals and I need to replenish the supply in case I need to go into another amazing deal that comes at the end. Um, there are other, some private funds out there um, that invest in notes that have great liquidity measures. So I can put the money in and I can pull it right back out. Very different from most syndications, which is pretty illiquid. So between, I, you know, I have a, a combo of these different avenues where if I blow my load on a few deals, I can kind of replenish the supply in case some amazing deal comes up after that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's uh, really good advice because a lot of real estate investors, um, I say it all the time because it's true. The number one thing I see is folks getting really excited, you know, as their inbox is getting full, like you mentioned, and then you know, the big one comes along and, and you're strapped. You can't, you can't take advantage because, you know, you're cash poor, so to speak. So yeah, having that liquidity is, is crucial. What would be a knock it out of the park deal for you? Like if you, what, what piques your interest from your inbox? What are you looking for? I mean, I'm trying to look at, I don't go into a deal unless I get the profit and loss statements and the, the rent rolls. So I run the deal independently on my own, do my own analyzer. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to check the operator and what kind of some deal assumptions they're making. Yeah, they can tell me that they're being conservative, conservative, conservative five to seven times throughout the presentation. But I want to know what are their assumed rent increase assumptions? What are the rent escalators per year? What is the full, full occupancy? What is the economic occupancy uh, vacancy assumed? And especially again, what is that reversion cap rate, right? Those are three quick things I can check from my boxers at home to see what are the assumptions that the sponsor's making. You know, there are many deals out there and the analogy that, you know, I think a lot of us use is the airplane analogy, right? Many airplanes take off, they head off across the, the, the mountains, but not many of them leave the hangar with enough gas, but nobody knows, nobody knows. But one of the ways you can determine how much gas it has is by checking these deal assumptions and if it's within compliance and if it truly is conservative. Gotcha. How is your portfolio built up to this point? Do you have any single family in the mix? Is it mostly, you know, 10 to 20 unit buildings, 100 unit buildings? What does that makeup look like? Yeah, I mean, 2015, I had 11 single family homes. I sold a lot of those off, most of them off um, in the subsequent years to go all into syndication deals. Um, I would say I'm 80% in residential multifamily um, because that's what I personally know the best. But I, I do see the value of diversifying over different asset classes. I got mobile home parks, I've got some I don't do any self-storage. I'm not too big fan of self-storage. Um, I've got 
couple of developments of RV parks, assisted living development. And, um, but initially I would go into a lot of class C deals. I'm not a huge fan of class C deals anymore because it's a hard tenant base. It's hard to collect from them. Um, I, I kind of like to stay to more class B, B plus type of areas. That's kind of where I just think the cash flow is a lot more stronger. On paper, classy deals, they cash flow like crazy, but it doesn't really happen in real life. I mean, the performer is just a performer, in my opinion. Um, it's kind of like buying like a $60,000 house that rents for 800. Numbers look great, right? Just like a class C deal saying, mm -hmm. well, we're going to give you 10 to 13% returns. But then I just... I just don't see that happening, right? You don't you don't really collect that eight hundred dollars a month consistently to be able to get the cash flows, and it's no different than the Class C deal. As far as like asset size, I mean, definitely trying to stay to the bigger deals these days. Definitely above hundred units. That's when you're getting the person standing inside the office. But more importantly, you really need that guy driving around in the golf cart, knocking at a five hundred dollar plumbing repair before his morning smoke break for the, the office person. So you can get all of these things done without third party. That's the key thing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say bigger is better, but as long as you can get above that 100% threshold, it's pretty decent size scale. Um, yeah, and, and kind of staying to not the super pretty properties, right? They, they, the A looking buildings. Those just tend just not to, not the pencil, especially from a rent to value ratio standpoint. Gotcha. Is there any uh, asset classes or certain types of deals that you are excited about going forward? Maybe some changes that you've seen because we had a lot of shakeups over this year, right? With COVID and everything going on. What kind of opportunities do you see going into 2021? Yeah, I'm personally doing some office right now. Um, if you would have asked me three months ago, I would have said you're crazy, but yeah, do I generally think that people are moving to uh, more work from home? Potentially, but I think it's more more in like the tech markets or the coastal markets like San Francisco, New York, right? Those places were expensive to begin with. And a lot of their, their workforce are tech type of workers that I feel like are a little bit more accountable to what they do, a little more independent workers. Whereas most people that work in offices I mean, I was one of them. You know, we're the cubicle dwellers that get paid forty to seventy thousand dollars a year. They need to have somebody babysit them in the office. And right now, they're all kind of working from home. But I can get a sense that people are telling me, at least my investors are telling me, yeah, the productivity is going down. This uh, this gravy train needs to end. And I'm thinking if you can not buy properties in the coast areas or tech markets, and you you kind of hop over this dissidence and invest only in deals in the Midwest in, in office space. I think it's a different paradigm there. So I'm very bullish on that. And if you can get it at such a lower price where you bring the basis down where you can break even at like 50% occupancy, I mean, to me, it's a no brainer, no brainer. And the fact right now, I think multifamily has shown its resilience through this pandemic, but I'm starting to see the institutional money flow down from other asset classes to multifamily. And it might be a good sign now, but how long do those crowd other people out, right? Right, absolutely. Um, I, I agree on the multifamily tip and uh, you're not the first person to, to 
express the, those opinions on the office market right now. So um, I've, I've personally never, I've been involved in, in a little bit of mixed use buildings that have had office, but office has always been way lower on my list as far as the asset classes go. But, um, but yeah, I agree. So are there any regions uh, that you're excited about going into 2021, you know, after things have been shaken up? You mentioned the Midwest. Is there anything specific that you're excited about or starting to look at now that you didn't before? I mean, I like the South, Southeast, Texas. I mean, those those have been pretty good for the last five, six years. Um, but I mean, I can't find a deal in Texas, a syndicated deal that works out there anymore. I mean, it's just too comp too competitive. So, and that's the hard thing, right? Once people find out about a place, mm -hmm. it's, it's all on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm in, I'm in Huntsville right now. I've got a pretty good stranglehold in that area, but like, it, it's just a matter of time before people find out about, it. I mean, it's starting to be on like the top five list for rent growth for ALN and those type of places. So it's just a matter of time, but like, to me, I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not really bullish on any one area. I'm like, well, show me the area and let me underwrite it to my expectations, right? Like I'll go into Jackson, Mississippi, right? But I'm gonna use the right deal assumptions. I'm probably gonna use like a 1% rent increase multiplier on that one or something like that instead of a two. Um, now I'm just gonna rent, underwrite the deal according to what I think of the area and whatever deal comes up, um, it'll float up to the top with the analyzer to me. Um, but granted, I'm not going to go into like a declining population part portion of the world. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's hot areas for sure, but they, there's a lot of competition. So I would rather, it's this theory of, well, would you rather go and fish in the, the lake that has all the swimming fish with a gazillion fishermen fighting you with it? Or would you rather go off to a little bit smaller lake, maybe not as big prize fish in there, but there's less people fishing. I mean, you could go either way, right? And that's where I'm kind of split too. I agree, I agree. Uh, so this has been a really good conversation. We're gonna start to wrap it up. What are some um, some books that you have read or, or could point people to certain resources uh, that have been really key for your development? I'm not a big fan of books. I mean, Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller is one I always say on these podcasts, but I'm like, once you read that, Quit reading books and go out and buy a property, buy a single family home, just get started. Mm -hmm. um, I subscribe by the 70-20-10 rule where 70% is just doing it. Only 10% is the academic reading books, podcasts. Um, go out and analyze deals, right? That's maybe if you don't want to buy something, go out and analyze deals, put it into the spreadsheet. That's great. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, uh, learned probably most of what I know and, and can lean on just from going through hundreds and hundreds of deals all you know every year or whatever so um, I kind of nerd out in that way too <laughs> on the analyzation um, so how can people find you or learn more about you and what you do yeah they can go to uh, my website and podcast we're more passive investors um, simplepassivecashflow.com. And then if you're, you guys are interested in picking up your first single family home rentals, that was how I started the podcast back in 2016. It, you know, it was talking about more tactile stuff. How do you pick up a turnkey remote rental? Um, I would say the first eight podcasts were all about that, but 
as I've kind of progressed to more of an accredited investor and grown up over the last few years, the topic material has definitely changed to more syndications, private placements, infinite banking, um, and yeah, accredited investor stuff, which I think is a lot easier. I mean, it's kind of simple compared to a lot of the noise out there. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks again. This has been great. Uh, we'll talk again. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Skyline Views with Chris Mills. We hope you found this valuable and useful. Feel free to share it with friends or family that could benefit as well. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. We really appreciate it. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us through thehaneycompany.com. See you next time. The information provided in this episode is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. Skyline Views, The Haney Company, their employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are advised to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant for the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Christopher Mills is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisor representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Neither Coastal Equities Incorporated nor Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated is affiliated with Skyline Views or The Haney Company. Advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, a U.S. SEC registered investment advisor, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801.